please don't adjust your radio. This week we're talking about hearing impairment and hearing aids, and this is what this programme sounds like for many of the people who have to use one. But why does it sound like that, and what are scientists doing to improve things? Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. It's Sunday, October the 14th. I'm Chris Smith and with me this week as we explore the world of hearing is Alan Boyd. Hello, Alan. Hello there. And we'll also be talking about these sorts of sounds. And if you recognise any of them, then you might be one of the 20% of the population who suffers from tinnitus. We'll be finding out what causes it and what we can do to treat it. Plus, the meteorite from Mars that has trapped inside it samples of Martian magma, surface material and even Mars's atmosphere. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. First up, how do we actually hear? What's happening in our ears and in our brains to give us a sense of sound? And why are so many, in fact one in six people in the UK, affected by problems with hearing? With us to discuss these issues is Dr Owen Brimmerjoin from the MRC Institute of Hearing Research in Glasgow. Hello, Owen. Hello, hello. So tell us a bit then about how the ear actually works. What is it doing? Right. Well, you have to consider that sound consists of these waves of pressure that are radiating outwards from any vibrating object. So you need a way to sense those changes in air pressure over time. Deep inside our ears, inside the structure known as the cochlea, we have these little hair cells, and they are tuned to vibrate at certain frequencies. We have ones that like to respond to low-frequency sounds, slow vibrations, and we have ones that respond better to high-frequency sounds and the entire range in between. So these little hair cells are kind of dancing back and forth, and if you've got a, you know, a complex sound like speech, for example, it's vibrating in lots of different places at once, and the brain is paying attention to what parts of the cochlea are most active. And it's that pattern of activation across space that allows you to detect your mother's voice and tell it from other people's voices. So the cochlea in the inner part of the ear is quite literally converting sound waves coming in from the outside world into brain waves. It's producing neurological information that's fired off into the brain that we then decode with higher brain processing into speech and music and that kind of thing. Right, and it's kept compartmentalized from the very beginning into low frequencies and high frequencies, and so the brain already has a lot of its task accomplished. So when someone loses their hearing, what actually has gone wrong? Because people who complain of being hard of hearing often say they can hear some sounds but not others. Right. Well, one of the problems that the ear has is that the cochlea is full of fluid. And if, as anyone has ever tried to shout at someone who's under the water, say, in a swimming pool, you know intuitively that sound doesn't like to travel from air into water. 
So we had these structures where the eardrum and the middle ear bones, whose purpose is to kind of convert these sound pressure changes so that they can effectively vibrate the fluids of the cochlea. Now that can go wrong. You can have earwax on your eardrum that prevents it from vibrating properly. Maybe you've got a middle ear infection and that prevents those little bones from vibrating properly. But most devastating and distressingly common, the death or destruction of these little hair cells themselves. And some of that's attributable to wear and tear, some to noise damage. There's any number of reasons why these die off, and, and they don't come back. Uh, once they're gone, um, they're gone. And so the brain doesn't have any sensors in that area and can't detect those sounds. So some sounds you'll become less sensitive to because you have lost these hair cells Correct. in regions yeah. of the cochlea that correspond to those particular sound frequencies. But you could equally have other bits of the cochlea that would decode other sound frequencies that would be working normally. So you have gaps right. in your ability to hear certain types of sound. That's right. And if you think about it, these hair cells have been banging away back and forth uh, in response to sound, sometimes thousands of times every second since you were born. So it's perhaps no surprise that when people lose their hearing, it tends to be the high-pitched sounds, the high-frequency sounds that they lose first. And I think this is a good point to come in and uh, start talking about how we restore hearing for hearing-impaired people. We'll come back to Owen in a second. And in my day job, I'm a hearing aid researcher. And so I decided to talk about hearing aids. And uh, here is someone who uh, has just been fitted with hearing aids talking about why they wanted them. My name is Thelma Purchase, and I live in Welling Garden City. What I really had the hearing aid for was that if I went to a talk, then I could pick it up. But if I find that my family are here, and they're all talking together, and I miss what they're saying quite often... So how do hearing aids work? And how could engineers improve them to give Mrs Purchase a better listening experience? I asked Søren Laugesen, a research engineer at the Ericsson Research Centre, a part of the Oticon hearing aid company, what a hearing aid is. Basically, it consists of a microphone, which picks up the sound, some digital circuitry that processes the sound, and a small loudspeaker that uh, delivers the sound back to the ear. So is a hearing aid basically a pair of glasses for your ears? The most obvious thing you notice about people with hearing loss is that they can't hear the very soft sounds. A big part of what a hearing aid does is to amplify sounds to uh, make these soft sounds loud enough to be heard by the user. But it's uh, not as simple as that because uh, if you try out a loud sound, you'll uh, actually recognize that um, a hearing aid or a hearing impaired person hears this sound perfectly well. So the hearing aid doesn't need to amplify the loud sounds, only the soft sounds. And in order to do that, um, we have some circuitry which is called a compressor, which makes sure that the, the soft sounds are amplified but uh, keeps the strong sounds basically where they are. To give you an idea of what this sounds like, here's an uncompressed sentence. Hello, I'm speaking quite quietly at the moment, but sometimes I raise the level of my voice. If I just amplified the whole thing, the quiet bit would indeed be easier to hear, but the loud part would become painfully loud. Instead, the compressor circuit in the hearing aid makes the quiet bits louder but leaves loud sounds untouched, so the overall sound is a consistent volume. Hello, I'm speaking quite quietly at the moment, but sometimes I raise the level of my voice. But what if there's background noise? How can we help a hearing-impaired person listen to one sound among many? For instance, I'm now sitting in a busy cafe using a microphone that picks up all the sound around it. 
The overall sound you're hearing is loud enough, but my voice is not very clear due to all the background noise. How can we alleviate this problem? In order to improve on that, we put various helping systems into the hearing aid. And the most powerful is definitely the directional microphone. Maybe you can, you can imagine that if you have two microphones in a line and the sound is coming from straight behind you, then you'll have the same sound picked up by the two microphones with a little bit of time delay between them. So if you now take the two signals and delay them with respect to each other and subtract them from each other, you'll end up with nothing. So the microphone will pick up nothing from behind, but will still be able to pick sound up from the front direction where you want to hear from. And so, if we now switch the microphone to its directional mode, you should be able to hear me more clearly, because the background noise is not being picked up by the microphone. But what about the noise that's left, such as low-frequency sounds? The other form of, uh, of noise reduction that we have on the hearing aid is a mechanism that looks at the sound that is coming into the hearing aid and tries to figure out whether certain bits of it is actually noise or actually signal that the user wants to listen to. And if you have noise, let's say, at uh, very low frequencies, then you can turn down these low frequencies uh, where the noise is dominating uh, in order to allow speech that you want to listen to to come through more clear at, in the other frequency bands. So that's how we remove unwanted background noise. But why is the sound quality from a hearing aid, which sounds a little like this, not as good as a CD player, for instance? In a CD player, um, there's a sampling rate of what we call 44,100 hertz, which essentially means that the system is measuring the actual sound 44,000 uh, times each second. But that has a cost in terms of um, processing power and uh, the simple electrical power you need to feed into the system. And we can't really afford that in the hearing aid because the battery is so small. So uh, a typical modern hearing aid will operate at a sampling rate of a little less than half of the CD player, which means that we have to say goodbye to the, the uh, upper part of the frequency range. But, but the, what really makes a difference to uh, the sound quality you can get from a hi-fi system and a hearing aid is the loudspeaker that we're using, uh, which for obvious reasons has to be very, very tiny. So there's really... a um, a limit to how loud it can play and also, again, the, the bandwidth of uh, what it will be able to produce. So the smaller loudspeaker and the reduced number of samples of sound taken each second by the hearing aid reduces the higher frequencies in the sound and produces a lower sound quality. We can also improve hearing aids by having them communicate information with each other about the sounds coming into each of them. The difference in volume between your ears is one way of discerning where a sound is coming from. By having the hearing aids communicate, we can preserve this difference even when amplifying and compressing sounds. In some situations, it can create some problems if the amount of amplification on the two ears are different. To avoid that problem, we can coordinate the two hearing aids so that they act in uh, synchrony. Soren Norgerson explaining the workings of a hearing aid to Alan Boyd. Alan, you actually work on this. So that was really interesting, what he was saying about the linking together of the two 
hearing aids in the right and left ear so they literally talk to each other. Is that actually being implemented yet or is that still experimental? Uh, the implementation of that is actually available um, on the market at the moment but largely just for change, what's called changing programs so just pressing buttons you don't have to press two buttons on either side um, but the actual linking in terms of sound information um, is coming in and is a kind of cutting edge part of the research. So listen up for that one. It's coming to a hearing aid near you quite soon. It's The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith and Alan Boyd. We're talking about the science of hearing, hearing aids, and coming up also tinnitus on the programme this week. Joan is in Lincolnshire and she's with us. Hello, Joan. Hello. Uh, your question. How does an unborn baby hear? Because they definitely react to different sounds. Absolutely they... true. Yes, they do. And a lot of research has been done on this, actually, including a very nice study that was done by scientists in America about 10 years ago now. They were interested in the amount of sound that pregnant women may experience in the military because with increasing numbers of women taking part in armed service work, they were wanted to be sure that there wasn't a, a potential danger to an unborn child. So they did experiments where they took a sheep that was pregnant and they put a, a microphone inside the sheep's uterus in the ear of the developing lamb and they recorded sounds from there and also outside the sheep and they made recordings of sounds played at the sheep with a loudspeaker and then asked a group of volunteers to listen back to what they'd recorded and they found that about a third to a half of the recordings were perfectly intelligible when the volunteers listened to them. They could repeat back the words that had been played out of the speaker. Uh, the reason for that is that sound waves are just as Owen was explaining, a compression wave. They vibrate things and fluid conveys sound waves extremely efficiently. And so the vibrations will hit the side of the sheep or the human they then go through the muscles and the skin and they then hit the uterus, which is the womb, and then make the fluid inside it vibrate and those vibrations can be carried to the ears of whatever's developing inside. So a baby is literally listening to its mum's voice. And other studies have shown that when babies pop out, they are born tuned to their mother's voice and they even imitate her accent regionally when they cry and this was proven a couple of years ago uh, comparing babies born to German and French mothers and the cries had a very different pattern uh, which was similar to the way that you speak those two different languages but a lovely question thank you for joining us with it thank you pleasure Let's go back to Owen, because, uh, Owen, one of the things that was mentioned um, when uh, Alan was talking to Soren about hearing aids was this whole concept of binaural hearing, how you compare what the right and left side of the brain is getting from uh, each ear. You work on this. How important is this for us when we're just going about our daily business? Um, it's very important because it's actually one of the few rock-solid cues that you have to determine where a sound is coming from. There are three basic ways you can do it. Two of them do involve you comparing the information at the two ears. If you have a sound, say, on your right, it'll be louder in your right ear, and it'll be quieter in your left ear, um, in a small part because it's further away, but mostly because the head is in the way. It creates an acoustic shadow, it's said. And then similarly, it takes longer, it takes longer time for the sound to pass to the further ear. And the brain is exquisitely sensitive to these subtle differences in timing. At the greatest, they're really only about a half a millisecond. Jonathan Manning has got in touch with a, a lovely question. Made me laugh, but then think, so maybe he deserves an Ig Nobel nomination for this. He says, can people with massive heads locate sounds better or more quickly than people with smaller heads? Right. Well, I, yes, I'd have to say, um, I've never seen the study entitled Sound Localization Ability as a Function of Head Size. 
But I'd have to say yes. If your sensors are further apart, then the cues will be larger. They'd be exaggerated. What about front to back? Right. That's where the third cue comes in. The spectral shaping properties of your ear. Everyone's got different folds and different ridges in their outer ears. And sounds coming from different directions kind of bounce off it in different ways and essentially give it a different timbre. So you know, just as you could tell the difference between an oboe and a violin playing the same note, so too can you tell the difference between a sound that's ahead and behind because it just sounds different. That's a way to get around that problem that a sound in front arrives at the two ears at the same time, but it also arrives at the ears at the same time if it's directly behind. This is The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith, and also with me this week, Alan Boyd, who is a hearing researcher, but also joining The Naked Scientist to make science programmes. First of all, let's take a look at what's been happening, scientifically speaking, this week with the science headlines. Alan, what have you got for us? The first story I have here is um, some researchers who have been looking to gain a better understanding of eczema. And it's known that 15% of children suffer from this debilitating and potentially disfiguring skin condition. And now researchers at Boston's Children's Care Hospital may have found a potential new target for the treatment of the disease by reducing the body's immune response. Well, first of all, what causes eczema? So in eczema, immune T-cells, a type of white blood cell, invade the skin and secrete substances that produce an allergic response and itchy skin. The disease is most common in infants and is usually outgrown by their teens, but some people may suffer from short bouts or flare-ups of the disease on and off throughout their life. And these flare-ups tend to occur after exposure to certain substances like soaps or as a response to a cold or respiratory infection. So what did the researchers in this study do? So the researchers um, have actually shown that the scratching of the itchy skin increases the severity of the condition by encouraging an influx of other immune cells called neutrophils. And these neutrophils secrete a fat or lipid molecule called uh, leukotriene B4, so LTB4, that attracts more neutrophils and the T-cells. So these cells aggravate the skin further by causing skin inflammation. And if you block these cells from entering the affected area, you can slow down or stop the disease. And previous to this study, little was known about the role of LTB4, but the scientists suspected that this uh, that its production was recruiting T-cells to the scratch site. And this actually turned out to be true. So the, they used a mouse model of eczema, and the team used a drug that blocks the LTB4, and this was found to block the development of an allergic skin inflammation. So it stopped the eczema. And in addition, they found that deleting the receptors for the LTB4 on the immune cells themselves had a similar effect. So the findings suggest that the neutrophils that uh, secrete this LTB4 play a key role in skin inflammation and that a new therapy for eczema could be developed targeting the production of or the response to these cells. That's exciting. But only in mice at this stage. This has not been done in humans yet. This particular thing hasn't been done in humans yet. No, it hasn't been looked at. Where did they publish that? And they published that in uh, Immunity. Alan, thank you. A meteorite that fell to Earth in 2011 contains trapped samples of the Martian surface its interior and also its atmosphere. Amazing to think that a a meteor could land on Earth carrying with it the vestiges of our next nearest neighbour. It's only been in orbit for about a billion years till it collided with us. That's when it left Mars, the scientists say. But this is extraordinary. It's a paper in Science this week. It's by Hasna Chinui Jahani. She's at Hassan II University in Casablanca. And they start the paper by saying, this is only the fifth observed meteorite to fall to Earth 
from Mars. In other words, they actually saw this one come in in July last year. And they spotted where it landed in Morocco. Some scientists went and retrieved the specimen before it had had a chance to become significantly contaminated with earthbound material. And they've begun to analyse it. And what they present in this paper is the initial morphology of this thing. It's very glassy. And when they cut thin sections through it, they saw several things. The glass is probably melting because of intense heat and pressure. And in the glass are some little bubbles, and those bubbles contain gas. And when they got the gas out of them, it's enriched for a certain isotope of nitrogen. And we know that that type of nitrogen isotope is enriched at a certain amount on Mars, specifically because of the Viking missions in the 1970s. They measured this in the atmosphere, and this matches. So we know there are trapped bubbles of Martian atmosphere in this thing. They also have got evidence for what would be the Martian equivalent of volcanic rock, so magma that's frozen as basalt. And they've got that inside the rock. And they've also got evidence of weathering. So, in other words, when a piece of rock sits on the surface, then fluids and other chemicals in the atmosphere interact with it and erode it and react with it. And that's there too. So what they're able to say in this paper is it looks like we've got something which started off as a piece of rock that got erupted out of the core of Mars. It cooled on the surface of Mars. It got weathered for a while, and various fluids and sulphur and things attacked it and deposited sulphates and other minerals into the cracks in it. Then a massive great impactor comes in from space. It clobbers the surface of Mars and causes a huge amount of heat and pressure which melts this thing and seals all those bits in there, including some bubbles of the atmosphere, and probably, around the same time, ejects this object out of Mars and into space about a billion years ago. And it then goes around in space until it lands here. So it's a unique insight into what Mars was like. That really is an incredible story. And uh, the, the next story that I have this week is on the link between intestinal viruses and the progression of the AIDS virus in monkeys. In both monkeys and humans, damage to the gastrointestinal tract, so your gut basically, is common and this can contributes to activation of the immune system, progressive immune deficiency and ultimately advanced AIDS. However, until now, it wasn't known how this damage occurred. And now researchers at the Harvard Medical Centre and the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Centre in Boston may have found the source. What is that source and what did that actually do to find it out? Well, the research suggests that it could be the presence of potentially infectious species of virus other than the main AIDS virus. And the researchers used a gene sequencing method that allows them to obtain genetic sequences for everything in the gastrointestinal tract, so from bacteria to viruses and, and every other kind of organism there. They then examined the faeces of monkeys with SIV-induced AIDS, SIV being the monkey equivalent of HIV, uh, monkeys without SIV infection and monkeys infected with strains of SIV that don't cause AIDS. So sort of low pathogenicity types of SIV. What did they find when they did this? Well, they found that the gastrointestinal tract of the AIDS-infected monkeys contained a large number of previously undescribed viruses, some of which were potentially infectious, but the, the, the bacteria in the gut did not change significantly. And what they think was happening was that the HIV was damaging the immune system, which then let in more viruses, uh, which then damaged the gut wall, which then could actually let in more organisms and more viruses, uh, which then stimulated an immune response and activated the immune system, making the HIV grow more. And basically this was a, a positive feedback mechanism that, that, that resulted in, in advanced AIDS. Gosh, so it's actually that these viruses that we'd previously never bothered to go looking for 
are growing because there's no immune response, damaging the gut wall, and the things that then creep across the damaged gut wall stimulate the immune system, making HIV grow better so that the individual then gets AIDS. Yeah, that's it. And this is the first time that anyone has looked for these kind of viruses in association with the gastrointestinal tract and AIDS. So it suggests that a rethink might be required into how the genomes of microorganisms uh, that may affect disease are studied. And these are not HIV agents. These are viruses of a range of different types. A range of different types of viruses, yeah. And and it was 34 different viruses that hadn't actually been seen before in the gut. Extraordinary. Complete rethinking and about turn on HIV. Well, also this week, scientists have discovered why certain kinds of therapy for cancers are less effective than they could be. Jennifer Landsberg is a researcher at the University of Bonn, and she has a paper in Nature this week. And what they have shown is if you give immunotherapy, and this is where you take immune cells and you program them to attack certain markers which are present on certain cancers, such as melanoma, Usually what happens, both in humans who tried this, but also in animal models of melanoma, you get an initial very good response and the disease appears to disappear. But then there's often a relapse and the disease comes back. Now, people have previously explained or described this as occurring because there's, by sheer chance, a small number of cells in the cancer that are invulnerable to the immune attack because they look different or they don't have these markers on them that the immune system is attacking and so they're weeded out and selected for by the response and then they're the ones that regrow everything. But what this group did in initially mice and then confirmed it with cultured cells as well, they found that actually rather than the population of cancer cells being a mixture and that some get to survive because they look different, the cells actually can tune into the signals the immune system is using to control itself rather like you bugging radio transmissions from the enemy. And when they hear certain chemical signals, they turn off the markers that the immune system was looking for. And this has the effect of effectively disguising the cells. They're ducking the immune response and they're left unharmed. So although a lot of the tumour will be removed, some of these cells will get left behind because the immune system has damped down the markers in them. And then as soon as that immune response goes away, they grow back again. And the researchers have shown this both in animals by taking a tumour that has relapsed in this way and transplanting bits of it to an animal and it makes a tumour that was identical to the starting tumour, proving that it could make all those markers again. And also they've shown that it's the signal called TNF-alpha, which is a key immune signalling molecule that makes this happen. So the cells respond to this TNF-alpha by turning off these markers. So they suggest that what we're going to have to do in future, if we want this sort of therapy to work, and it could be really effective to treat cancer, programming the immune system, because the immune system can go everywhere. The problem will be we need some markers for it to target, which aren't just markers of, say, melanoma. There have to be some other markers that the cells can't change so easily in order to duck or disguise themselves from the immune response in future. Now, also this week, big news for Cambridge University. We won another Nobel Prize. Well, not we personally. Someone who worked at the Gurdon Institute. In fact, it is embryologist Sir John Gurdon. He learned on Monday that the Physiology and Medicine Nobel Award had come his way. And it was in recognition of his discovery using frogs that if the DNA in the nucleus of a specialised cell from, say, the intestine or the skin of an adult is then put into an egg cell, which has had its own genetic material removed, you can get a new frog which is genetically identical to the first one. This is, of course, the basis of the cloning process, which eventually enabled scientists in the 90s to clone Dolly the sheep. 
At the age of almost 80, Sir John Gurdon is still doing experiments and I went to see him in his lab this week to find out how he made this dramatic breakthrough. The story leading to this award, well, of course, that goes back right to almost the beginning of life. My mother and aunt could see I, at a very early age, like six or seven, I liked to catch butterflies, and uh, they encouraged that. That encouragement went on during my teenage years when I was at school, and I used to infuriate my housemaster at school by growing caterpillars as much as I could in my room, which he thought was a waste of time and stupid. <laughs> How did that turn into the work that then led to you winning the Nobel Prize? I was started on science at school at the age of 15. In those days, you didn't do any science until you were of that age. And then I did one term of science being taught by a biology master, and he gave me an absolutely crippling report, essentially saying I was absolutely unsuited to science, at which point I was removed from science in the rest of my time at school and was put on to ancient Greek and Latin. And then when I finished school, my mother and family could see what I really was interested in was actually biology in one form or another. And they, having paid very expensive private school fees to the age of 18, they were then uh, asked if they would spend another two years um, having me trained to get into science, which they very generously did. And then I ended up being accepted for the zoology course in Oxford University. And then the career really took off when I was a graduate student with a wonderful supervisor in that department. So how did you then translate that into an interest in the work that then led to where you are now? Well, when I needed to start a PhD, the person who kindly invited me to become a student of his he was an embryologist, and I did think that was an extremely interesting subject as to how a plant seed turns into a plant or an egg turns into an animal with no guidance from outside, particularly if you think of frogs. That egg just sits there in a pond, and somehow it knows on its own how to turn into a tadpole. Amazing phenomenon. So I was um, delighted to be accepted for a PhD work in what was called embryology. And how did you progress that? What were the big questions when you started your PhD? Yeah, that's a very good point. The primary question I was concerned with was whether all the different cell types of the body have the same sets of genes or not. And one has to go back a step and remember that in the late 1800s, people were very curious about whether the formation of different cells meant that something is lost from the cells that don't need it. For example, brain genes being lost from skin or heart genes being lost from the liver or, if not lost, at least permanently put out of action. So people thought that when a cell turns from, say, a primitive cell in an egg into what becomes skin, that in becoming skin it in some way throws away some of the genes that would enable it to do anything else, so for the rest of its life it has to stay as a skin cell. That's exactly right, and there's a person, his name was August Weissman, who actually proposed that that is how development works. It would make good sense, really, that you throw away what you don't want and you end up keeping what is needed for the particular cell type you are trying to make. Seems pretty logical to not keep stuff. So you were very much swimming against the tide. If you were trying to disprove that, you're going in completely the opposite direction to 
what people thought at the time. In a way, it was swimming against a tide, but really the point was this was a question being asked. It wasn't as if they said, we know this happens, you have to kind of prove it. It was they saying, is that how development works? And there is a piece of background that's important. Uh, the technique of introducing uh, a nucleus from a cell into an egg was actually invented by two Americans called Briggs and King. And they did that um, in 1952. And they found that if you take the nucleus of a very early embryo cell and put it into an egg whose own genes have been removed, they did indeed get normal-looking tadpoles. However, they found that if they took a nucleus from a little bit later embryo, an embryo that's a day later, that no longer happened. And so they concluded, uh, as indeed I would have done if I'd done that experiment, that something is being lost or permanently inactivated that is needed to enable the whole organism to be formed. So I was in the position of being invited by my supervisor to try and do the same work, albeit on a different species. How did you actually do that? And how many embryos did you have to throw away before you realised what was actually going on? So it, it, the Briggs and King had invented this clever method, and we tried that, and it absolutely wouldn't work at all. So that turned out to be because the kind of frog we were using has an extraordinary elastic jelly coat, which makes it totally impenetrable. And by a piece of luck, my boss had recently bought a fancy ultraviolet microscope for UV microscopy, and an extraordinary piece of luck was that that particular wavelength of ultraviolet light also destroyed this jelly coat, meaning it was possible to actually penetrate this egg with a micropipette. Sometimes it works absolutely perfectly, and the combination of the transplanted nucleus and egg will make a completely normal adult frog. Other times it doesn't. Something goes wrong. And the more advanced the cell from which you take the nucleus, the more likely it is to go wrong. But it works from time to time. So that led you to be able to conclude that regardless of how specialised a cell is, there is a complete complement of DNA in that cell, which, if you put it back into an egg, can recapitulate an entire animal again. So you get that result. Your whole life changes, presumably, because you've um, suddenly rewritten <coughs> biology. Yes, it did, really, because it... It seemed to prove that, we now believe to be true, that all cells of the body, almost all, have the same set of genes. And from then onwards, which was roughly 50 years ago, I've been trying to discover how that happens, what has the egg got that can set the whole program back to the beginning again. And some people say Gurdon did an interesting experiment when he was a student and he spent the next 50 years doing nothing useful at all. Do you agree? I like to think not, because we actually do understand a reasonable amount, don't understand everything. That's my next uh, aim, to try and fully understand how this is done. John Gurdon, who won the 2012 Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine, chatting with me earlier this week. And I've put a full version of that interview in which he talks about what he's doing today as a special edition Naked Scientist podcast on our website. If you go to nakedscientist.com and follow the links to our special podcast, you will find that there. Alan. Forests cover almost one third of the Earth's landmass and play a key role in the health of our planet. 
They regulate climate change by removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through photosynthesis and storing the carbon. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson meets Dr Karsten Schoenroger from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology in Wallingford, and she began by asking about the meaning of a current buzzword with regards to climate, future-proofing. Well, we're talking about particularly commercial forestry, where foresters are concerned with the fact that plantations they put down into the ground today have a turnover time from 50 years, 80 years, sometimes 100 years, And so the trees they're planting now will experience the climate which we expect to be here in 50 and 100 years. So the question is whether current planting strategies to source the seed material locally is actually the best strategy there is. Future-proofing might mean to go to areas in the range of the plants they're interested in which today experience a climate which we expect here in the future. What sort of forests are you in particular thinking of? What sort of trees? Our project is particularly aimed at sessile oak trees, which is one of the two native species which we also have here in Britain. These are hardwood trees, and there's a particular interest to grow these trees for the timber industry. It is also the tree in Europe which supports the highest biodiversity. On oak trees, we would find across Europe possibly 700 different species of insects which is by far more than any other tree species that we have. So how do you go about future proofing in terms of an experimental way? How do you determine whether oak trees will be able to withstand a changing climate? Well in our project we were inspired by a particular strategy called climate matching. In the climate matching scenarios we use forecasts for climates to be expected in the UK in 50 or 80 years and we look for areas across Europe where that climate already exists. So what will the UK be like in 40 or 50 years? Which climate does it most match? It will depend, but the matching areas for, for instance, southern England would be the Bordeaux area in France under a low carbon dioxide scenario, but central Italy for a high CO2 scenario. That's quite a difference. It's quite a difference, and... We expect those trees to perform well in 50 to 80 years, but of course, as they go in the ground now, we might expect them not doing very well. So you've planted some oak trees then in a specific area in northern France. What are you actually looking at then in terms of determining whether the oak trees are doing well or not? The trees were planted by collaborators of ours in France, an organisation called INRA. It's the largest trial of its kind. It's a million trees in four locations and we worked in one of them so 250,000 of them and we looked at trees which come from 20 different locations in Europe as far away as Ireland in the west Denmark in the north and Georgia and Turkey in the south. Our colleagues at INRA looked at every single tree and scored them for the time of the year when they come into leaf. They scored them for the growth for the form they grow in, how many branches they have. What did you find? So our first interest was whether these trees are locally adapted to the climates in the area where the seeds came from. And yes, there's strong evidence that these trees differ according to the place where they come from. The second then was whether we can take the phenotype, so all the different growth parameters and the time when they come into bud and to leaf, would determine the insect communities which are associated with them. And that seems to be true as well. In fact, we can 
take a step out. We can take the climate variables from the places where these seeds came from and we can predict how different these insect communities might be. The more complicated part of all this is to predict exactly how the communities differ and to possibly make predictions about individual species of insects and whether they might become more or less abundant when they're feeding on these foreign provenances, as we call them, oak trees. So who's going to be most interested in the result of your research? Well, we hope that both the forestry community, who makes plans as to what good planting strategies are, would be interested, but also the conservation area, the biodiversity sector in general. So better forest management will come out of this in order to effectively protect future forests. Future-proofing, there's that word, future-proofing. Absolutely. Dr Karsten Schoenroger from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology in Wallingford. And you can hear a longer version of that interview on the current edition of the Planet Earth podcast. Simply follow a link from our webpage or find it via Planet Earth online. And now with a roundup of some of the other stories that are hitting the headlines this week, including a new way to increase the number of donor organs usable for transplants, here is Hannah Critchlow with our Naked Scientist News Flash. For the first time, anonymous mobile phone data has been used to discover how human travel patterns contribute to the spread of malaria. The same model could also be used to track diseases like influenza. Researchers at the Harvard School of Public Health, publishing in Science, mapped the locations of calls and texts from 15 million mobile phones in Kenya over a 12-month period. This information was combined with data charting cases of malaria, enabling the team to identify factors that contribute to outbreaks, such as, for instance, journeys to high-risk outback areas. Co-author Caroline Bucky explains how she will build on this work. We'll be trying to apply it to other countries in sub-Saharan Africa. One of the problems is getting hold of these mobile phone data sets. So we're going to be working on on trying to get more comprehensive data over longer periods of time. Uh, And I think that will have a range of useful applications. New features of stellar evolution have been observed by astronomers at the University of Bonn using the ALMA Array Telescope in Chile. The radio telescope is made up of many smaller telescopes working together, giving vastly more detailed images of stellar objects than previously available. Using the telescope, the researchers were able to study the outer shell of dust and gas a star throws off in its later life, during a so-called thermal pulse. The team unexpectedly found a spiral structure of dust and gas connecting the star to its shell, which allowed the team to find out far more about how the star behaved before, during and after the creation of the outer shell than they previously expected. Matthias Meyerke, a co-author of the paper published in Nature, explained the importance of this work. Thermopulses are really the main driver of the evolution of old stars. They really drive the uh, creation of new elements inside the star, so it it leads to the chemical evolution of the star itself. And all this material eventually gets put into the stellar wind and blown into space. Most of the elements that we see on Earth, for example, uh, especially the ones that are lighter than iron, all the carbon, all the oxygen comes from stars like this. So understanding this process is basically understanding how uh, life is formed in the universe. Medical engineers have designed a device that can not only keep donor lungs alive for longer, 
outside the donor's body, but also enable more thorough checks and even some improvements for partially damaged lungs for transplants. Normally, lungs are transported at a cold temperature to slow down the effects of metabolism and oxygen starvation outside the body. This new system puts, or perfuses, a blood-like solution through the lungs at body temperature to keep the lungs viable for 10 hours, several hours longer than previous systems. Gregor Wernicke, a co-author of the Lancet paper and a member of one of the several German institutions involved in the study, described the device's potential for longer-term storage in laboratory trials. We have perfused these organs for 24 hours and in some occasions even for up to 72 hours and still having stable function after that time. And finally, it was thought that mice lack the ability to learn new vocalisations. Or, to put it more simply learn a new squeak. That is, until now. Work published this week in PLOS One by researchers at the Duke University Medical Centre have found parts of the brain in mice that controls copying a sound, a behaviour thought to be unique to humans and songbirds. The researchers found that male mice could learn to match vocal pitch of another mouse, mimicking its squeak. Co-author Eric Jarvis explains why. They sing these songs to the females... It's probably a courtship display, uh, meaning that uh, they're trying to attract the female for mating. So if uh, one guy is getting the female more often than the other, uh, what he might try to do is match that pitch of that guy's song. This study shows that we could use mice as a model to find out more about speech disorders affected by vocalisation, such as autism. Hannah Critchlow, and you can find the transcripts and the references for all of our news this week on the website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. There you go, Alan. You just have to squeak the same song as the guy who's getting all the girls. It might work. Might do, if I was a mouse. Tinnitus is the experience of sound in the absence of any real noise, and it's estimated to affect one person in five and can have a devastating effect on some people's lives. My tinnitus, I have two pulses. One that goes boom, 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 boom. And the other one goes woo, 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 slightly higher, a bit crazy. It causes me to panic at times. During the day, it's fine because I have plenty of noise around me, but I find it mainly at night. Dr. Payman Adyamayan researches tinnitus at the MRC Institute of Hearing Research in Nottingham. So, Payman... What exactly causes tinnitus? That is the $6 million question. The exact cause of tinnitus is, I'm afraid, unknown. The fact is there is no single cause. Very often what is known are associated events. So, for example, people will say their tinnitus started when they heard a sudden loud noise or when they had earwax removed or when they had a bad bout of flu or an ear infection. But in many cases, it just seems to appear from nowhere. So how many people are actually affected by tinnitus? Estimates tend to vary, and the main reason for that is many people with tinnitus simply aren't bothered by it. So they tend not to report it or they tend not to seek help. But in most studies, um, the prevalence is um, um, about 20% of the population, and in about 10% of these, it can seriously affect the quality of their lives. And so who is, is most likely to suffer from tinnitus? Um, In theory, anyone can develop tinnitus. 
it's most common, however, in people with hearing loss. And if I may expand on that a little, in the cochlea, sounds of different frequency are processed in order from high to low frequencies. And we think what happens is that in tinnitus is that as some hair cells get damaged, the cochlea no longer transmits sounds to the brain that correspond to those frequencies. So neurons further up in the auditory system begin to produce their own random activity in order to compensate for the lack of external sounds, which the brain then uh, interprets as tinnitus. So that's the physiological basis of tinnitus. Is there any kind of psychological basis of it? Are some of these sounds imaginary or are they actually there? Well, I mean, if by psychological you mean, as you said, imaginary, then no, the tinnitus sound is not imagined. The sound is very much real. So there is definitely some physiological abnormality either in the peripheral auditory system, which is the ear, or the central auditory system, which is the brain. But psychology definitely plays a role in that the way a person reacts to their tinnitus determines to a large extent whether the tinnitus then uh, goes on to become intrusive and bothersome or not. Most people tend to panic when they first hear their tinnitus, and it can be quite scary. It's a little like a vicious circle, uh, where a negative reaction to the tinnitus leads to anxiety, stress, and very often sleep deprivation, because the sound tends to be louder at night um, when the person tries to go to sleep. This in turn leads to depression in many cases, and it tends to worsen the tinnitus. Is it possible to cure tinnitus? Is, it, is there any treatments available for tinnitus? Yeah, um, unfortunately, again, right now there is no standard treatment and there is no magic pill. Some hearing therapists and audiologists um, offer hearing aids to people with tinnitus when it is associated with hearing loss. And the idea there is that when external sounds are amplified, they uh, tend to mask tinnitus. But also, if we can restore hearing to normal or near to normal, then and um, there is external input to the artery system and the neurons don't generate their own random activity anymore. So the tinnitus goes away. And I hasten to add that it works in some people, but um, not in everyone. And the benefits aren't universal. So they aren't uh, routinely offered by um, audiologists. Thelma's problem at the beginning there when she was describing her tinnitus. Um, what kind of tinnitus is that? Is that the same as what you've been describing or is that different? That sounded like pulsatile tinnitus, which is slightly different. It's less common than the type of tinnitus that most people experience. Pulsatile tinnitus is, uh, is a rhythmical noise. It usually has uh, the same rate as the heart, and as the name suggests, it is synchronized to the pulse. Now, the causes of pulsatile tinnitus may have to do with blood flow changes near the ear or just simply an increased awareness of the blood flow near the ears. Jill has a question for you. Hi, Jill. Hello. I've had tinnitus for about a year now. The problem is I'm totally blind as well. I've, I've coped with that. But this tinnitus is like driving me up the wall. I was in hospital in May. I had labyrinthitis for eight days. And I had my ears tested. And they said, for my age, my hearing is good. But there's just nothing they said they can do for my tinnitus. Payment, what could she perhaps do? 
typically when we lose one sense, and in her case she's lost her sight, other senses seem to become more sensitive. There are various things she can attempt as her hearing is normal. She probably won't be offered any hearing aids. But what people tend to do is um, use unconventional means or self-help techniques. People use different sounds, for example, such as white noise, which works by drowning the tinnitus sound, and this is called masking. There are also more pleasant sounds that people use, which have psychological soothing effects, like the sound of ocean waves, rainfall or soft music. But again, as with everything else to do with tinnitus, what works with one person doesn't necessarily work with uh, someone else. Ian Baker got in touch from Woodbridge and says he suffers from tinnitus and tends to sleep on his bad ear to try and lessen or dampen the ringing, which would go along with that sort of strategy, wouldn't it? You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Alan Boyd. We're talking about the science of hearing, hearing impairment and tinnitus this week. Our guests are hearing researchers Owen Brimajoin and Payman Ajamayan. They're based at the MRC Institutes of Hearing in Glasgow and Nottingham, respectively. Andrew is in Norwich. Hello, Andrew. You've got a very important question. Go ahead. Why is it when I'm concentrating on one side, let's say like watching the television, and my wife says something to me, even though she's closer, I don't tend to hear what she's saying? How convenient. They do say that the secret to uh, a long and fruitful and happy marriage is a blind wife and a deaf husband. Is that true, Owen? (laughs) Um, So why does this happen? There's any number of reasons Sounds that are coming from different angles can be uh, easier to hear, sort of to tell apart from one another. But in this sort of a situation, I'd have to go with not a physiological explanation, not an acoustic explanation, but an attentional mechanism. It's really a question of you have decided that this is what you're listening to, and your forebrain is pretty much powering you through, and that's what you're paying attention to. Distractions be damned. A sort of similar question to what Andrew just asked. Paul Harrington says, I'm interested in in what we choose to hear. I've met people with Asperger's who say that they hear everything equally and this becomes a huge sound overload for them, but I can filter out background sounds to focus on what I want to hear. How does that work? I can't comment intelligently on Asperger's syndrome or on uh, sort of the autistic spectrum, but if it is a question of allocation of attention people who have difficulty channeling their attention to particular stimuli, to particular things, are going to have a harder time filtering out things that they don't want to hear. Now this one, Carol King says, and I suppose this is allied to those other ones, if someone isn't hearing you because they're wrapped up in a task or they're being stubborn, what's the best sound that will bypass these and get their immediate attention? (laughs) Right. Well, their name, for one. Usually that's one of the most salient signals that you can give someone. You say their name, Chris, and it pretty much perks you up. I suppose you could shout, uh, help, help, you know, fire or something, but... uh, no, That's names cruel. Are really That's good, cruel. So, yes. Yeah. Payman, Dina van der Werf says, is tinnitus hereditary? Well, I certainly don't know of a tinnitus gene, and people working on the Human Genome Project haven't discovered one as far as I know. There may be a genetic predisposition in some people when they're exposed to loud sounds, but it is not clear whether there is a, a genetic link. So I would say, uh, at the moment, negative. Pekka Oilinki has said on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientist, I've experienced a few times where I've been in total silence and this induces a sensation of an annoying high-pitched noise. 
What's that all about? That could be tinnitus because you become aware of it because you're in complete silence. And normally when you go about your daily business, it is masked by different sounds coming at you from different directions. So it could be a case of tinnitus. But then I would suggest don't pay any attention to it. Don't, don't start thinking you have tinnitus because remember what I said about psychology. If you start worrying about tinnitus, you will start to notice it more. Thank you very much, Payman, Adjamayan and also Owen Brimijoin. Alan. And now, with a question of a completely different type, here's Hannah Critchlow with our Question of the Week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. This week, we find out if there will ever be a real-life Dr Doolittle. Hi, my name is Hannah Hockley, and I'm from Bristol, and I wondered... Will we ever be able to have a conversation with animals? So what's the scientific possibility of this? And what do we count as a conversation anyway? We call up somebody who spends his working week looking into these very questions. Hello, my name is Eric Jarvis. I am an associate professor in neuroscience at the Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. There are several ways of thinking about what it means to have conversations with animals. One way is reciprocal learned vocal communication, that is spoken language, which we humans do with each other. Surprisingly, we can do this in a rudimentary fashion with some animals that can learn to speak, like African gray parrots. These species are vocal learners, meaning that they have the ability to imitate sounds. And then there are the forms of communication, where an animal such as dogs will understand human speech words, but not be able to produce them. And many animals, including monkeys or um, cats and so on, will be able to understand and to produce facial expressions, eye movements, body language, so to speak, and other forms of communication. But if we think about the first type of communication that we humans have, so vocal intelligence, reciprocal communication, is this possible with animals? I believe that many animals have a greater capacity for complex understanding of what we call comprehension of sounds, but not the ability to produce those sounds. My research has shown that those animals that have the ability to produce them, that is to produce the imitated sounds like humans, have specialized areas in their forebrains that control vocal learning and the production of the learned sounds. And these areas have so far not been found in the species that can't do vocal learning. Further, we've been investigating ways in which we can manipulate the brain circuits of such non-human animals to determine if we can do better control of their vocalizations. If successful one day, in my lifetime or later, then yes, I believe we will be able to communicate with other animals more verbally in a reciprocal manner than what we do now. So neuroscientists are tweaking with the vocal learning centres at the front of the brains of animals, altering the activity in these circuits to learn how they work. And they think that in the future, we may be able to have more reciprocal vocal conversations with a number of different animals. Sticking with expressing ourselves, we pose our next question. Hello, I'm George Cotterali from Wirral. And my question for the Naked Scientist is, was prehistoric art, like cave paintings, only done in caves, or is that the only place untouched enough for it to be preserved. 
So did our ancestors paint and draw all over the place, or did they just hang their artworks in caves? Send us your thoughts by posting on our Naked Scientists Facebook page, tweet at Naked Scientists, email chris at thenakedscientist.com, or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow. Well, that's it for this week. We've run out of time, but do please keep sending in all of your questions and comments because next week is our Naked Scientist phone-in science extravaganza, including with a very special guest. We have the stand-up mathematician Matt Parker will be here, so if you have any maths conundrums for him to take on, now's the time to send them in. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. By email, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Thank you very much to Owen Brumajoin and Payman Ajamayan and also to our production team of Hannah Critchlow and Tom Simpkins. Until next time, and don't forget, please, to fill in our survey, nakedscientist.com slash survey. Goodbye. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Oh, 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 oh